0: Hello, I'm Tim Marlowe, Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts, and this event was part of the Festival of Ideas, an inspiring lineup of talks and debates with innovators from across the arts, brought to you from the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Enjoy the podcast.
1: imagine that like many of you here, I feel that I've lived with Michael Cailin <coughs> for an awful lot of my life. Um, I can remember discovering Monty Python late at night on television and feeling it was my own program. And I was looking up when, when it first started, actually, and I found an early episode was called It's the Arts, or the BBC entry to the Zinc Stoat of Budapest. <laughs> so perhaps this was always in your, in your DNA that you were going to do programs on the arts, but you very successfully made the transition to travel programs, which became uh, hugely popular. I found out about one of them recently. I was in the Arctic feeling, as a great explorer, I'd gone to a tiny research station in Svalbard, but they showed me in the entry book that uh, Michael had been there 20 or 30 years before. (laughs) Um, Uh, But then you, you came into arts television, and it was really through... Uh, your own collection, wasn't it? That you had no intention of presenting arts programmes. Uh,
0: no, I mean, I, I, I wasn't against doing it, but what happened was that I had seriously bought my first painting in, I think, 1991. I'd made a bit of money from pole to pole book sales and uh, bought a sicket from a gallery up in uh, Glasgow. Walter Sicket, yeah. Walter Sicket, yes. Um, UN Mundy's gallery and uh, I liked Ewan and I liked the selection of paintings he had. They didn't have, it wasn't a big gallery, so what he chose was very, very personal. A lot of it was sort of Scots, not the Sicket, but a lot of others. And through him, I bought two paintings, which I really liked, by an artist who I didn't know called Anne Redpath. She was Scots. She died, I think, in the 1950s or 60s. Um, and she, as uh, I say, was a, uh, was a wonderful Colorist, And I very much um, liked her style, the thickness of the paint and all that sort of thing. So I bought a couple of these. And two people called, uh, Eleanor Yule, who's the director, and Mary McNeil, the producer, rang me up and said, we're making a programme about Anne Redpath. We hear you've got two of her, her paintings coming. Come to your house and... Um, and film the paintings. I said, yes, please do. So I stood out of the way, they were filming the paintings. I said, would you like to say anything about any of them? I said, oh, well, if you insist. <laughs> yes, well. So I got my Kenneth Clark kit on. And um, <laughs> I did talk about one called um, um, The Old Town Monton. And uh, anyway, by the end of the session, they said, look, why, did, why, did, why didn't you come with us to France? I mean, let's... let's Make this exploration into Anne Redpath's work, an exploration into this particular painting that you've got. Why was it painted there? What, was the, what were the conditions? All that sort of thing. So that, and that was very successful. I mean, but we it was, it was only shown in Scotland, but it was successful. And from that time on. Eleanor and Marie um, and I have had this wonderful relationship where we just get, oh, here's an artist no one ever heard of. Let's let's try and make a film about it. We go to the BBC and uh, on a good day, they'd say, yes, you can have the money, (laughs) not very much. On a bad day, they'd say no. But we have made now six programmes uh, together about artists, all very, very different. And all, I think, sort of characterised by a love of of painting itself, the act of painting and, and exploring it on canvas.
1: Well, let's begin by looking at an extract from that very first programme, from the Anne Redpath one, and I think you can get a sense of a certain affinity between Michael and Redpath. Oh, well,
0: it makes my house look rather lovely. <laughs> it does look like, no, not bad. I <laughs> must have cleaned it all up, that's, it, that's all I can say.
1: You you talked about going to the south of France to discover more Mm. about Anne Redpath. So it was a voyage of discovery for you, even though you had paintings of hers. What did you learn in the course of making that programme?
0: Well, I I learned quite a bit about Anne Redpath herself, who was, you know, she she was a woman. She was married. She went to France because her husband was an architect and they got a job restoring some villa. And for a long time, she was bringing up children and she just couldn't paint. There was sort of... Uh, a brief period when she painted and then a long period when she just didn't have time to paint and clearly she had enormous talent um, and then you see these works which came up later when she finally got back to uh, Edinburgh and was able to, was able to paint so I found out that, that here the, the talent that had been sort of um, suppressed really for, for about 10 or 15 years what might have come out of it we don't know and um, the other thing I found out which is just about about paintings, really. And I, I went to Monton and we found the exact spot where she would have stood to paint it. And yet something seemed to be wrong because on the painting I had, um, there were some fishing boats all drawn up right by the, by the quay side where the, where the houses are, are there. And um, we went along and clearly things had changed a lot. There were, no, there were no boats near the houses. They were quite a long way away. And, and we talked to various people there and talked talk, talk to one of the, the people in, in Montre. I said, oh, no, no, we have storms. When the storms come, all the, all the boats are moved up close to the houses. And I went back and looked at my painting I said, of course, not only the boats near the houses, but the trees she's drawn, a door tilted, They're obviously swaying in the wind. And then I looked at the out team, right at the sort of the top part of the painting and there were clouds scudding by and suddenly the whole painting sort of started to sort of be like a, a you know, I was looking out the window at the time and I could see that's, that it was, she got it completely right for that time in that way.
1: And there's such a, a vibrancy, isn't there, about her paintings and the use of colour. And she and, and other artists of her generation are seen, aren't they, as the heirs to the Scottish school, people yeah. known as the colourists, which was the subject of your next programme.
0: Yes, um, I think we, I was very much in a sort of Scottish, uh, uh, looking at it from, uh, from a Scottish angle at the time, because that's what we made the programme, BBC Scotland, and... We'd seen this connection between the post-impressionists in, in France and the Fauves and all that, and and Scottish artists. Not English artists weren't affected in quite the same way, but a lot of the Scottish artists, like Ferguson and others, went to um, went to Paris and produced this vibrant work, which was seemed at odds with with you know, the, the Greek Scottish weather and all that sort of thing, but they were... they were Well, they, it may
1: have made them appreciate it made, more. Yeah,
0: exactly, but they certainly <laughs> yeah. reproduced it absolutely beautifully, so yeah. we thought we'd have a look at um, the, the Scottish colourists, because there's no, there's no equivalent, I don't think, in England in quite the same way, the exuberance of these four painters. Um,
1: and early on in the documentary, you say that there was a while where they fell rather out of fashion and part of the reason was almost that they, to look at them was too easy to enjoy.
0: Yes, mm. yes, I think perhaps that's, that's it really. They were um, what you see is what you get rather. But that's particularly of Ferguson, I think. Uh, there's a man called Leslie Hunter, who's one of the others who I really like and he was, he was the least successful commercially. But he painted lots of different things all the time, and some would work and some wouldn't. And we went to a hotel called the Colomne d'Or in France.
1: Lucky old you. Well, we,
0: well we're filming there because because some of his so works yes, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I can remember actually arriving. It was very strange because we'd been filming for a few days. We had a lot of dirty laundry. And uh, I, I was told that if you take it up to the hotel while we're filming, we're staying overnight, they'll, they'll do it there. So we, we went up this driveway and it went straight into a rather elegant poolside area where people with straw hats were all having their lunch and all that wine was being poured by men in white coats. And there was I with my dirty laundry <laughs> making my way through the tables. Um, Literally washing
1: your dirty laundry in I public. Was, I mean, <laughs> yes.
0: uh, um
1: but but it is it's a place which is a hotel with many many famous paintings in it leslie
0: hunter had stayed there in the 20s and had painted there and could never pay his bills. so they had an enormous number of (laughs) hunters work there (laughs) which you were able to see so it was a little hunter museum and he was more interesting and more curious but i think it's a fair point that they're they're kind of they they just want to paint with color you know and, and that, that's, that's what they were doing.
1: And there can be a challenge with arts documentaries to make them uh, feel different. And then obviously you're exploring landscape and the paintings themselves. But in this documentary began in an unusual way because you started the filming in Downing Street,
0: which is an unexpected yes, day. Yes, yes. Um, uh, Scots colorists were part of the government art collection and they were, they were there in, whenever we filmed, about 2000. And I remember Tony Blair was there and we were filming said hello, and um, he was going off to, it was Tuesday night, and he was going off to the palace, because Tuesday uh, night the is when they go and have the audience yeah, with yeah. the Queen. Yeah. And uh, oh, I said, you know, we had a little chat, I said, well, um, nice to meet you, blah, 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 and off he went. Um, and I said, we'll be gone. Of course we weren't gone, the way filming is, and they had rather lovely paintings there, so we were, <laughs> we were there when he came back. And he said hello, and, all that, and they went. he went off to a big discussion with Alistair Campbell and all that. And um, Alistair Campbell came out and said, uh, well, you know, hello, um, well, Tony's got to do this thing tomorrow which is the Women's Institute uh, <gasps> by oh, conference. That's yeah. he said, there's gonna be 10,000 women there. <laughs> and I said, oh yeah, I've done that. He said, what? He said, I did it a couple of years ago. Really? What do you do? And I said, well, yes, that's fine. You know, or, or I remember just standing there and talking about my life. And every time I mentioned a part of Britain, there would be a cheer. So I said, I'm born in Sheffield. (laughs) Hey, the Sheffield section. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, met a wife my, my uh, girlfriend's from Cambridge <laughs> you know, and all that I said that's the thing mainly concentrate on make them all feel included mm-hmm. anyway as you know Tony Blair goes off and starts to talk politics. And and it's one of the, famously
1: know, got booed, didn't he got very booed, early yes, on yes, yes. it's kind of the baby marked the end of the honeymoon
0: period I think yeah, I, I always remind yeah. him of that when I see it <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, yes, we were filming. We were filming that, and uh, I mean, uh, one thing that, that actually I think the red path shows that I felt about presenting arts programs is is you don't want too much of the presenter. You know, very mm. often arts programs you've got someone in, in standing. In a lot of
1: and pro, all programs, actually, it's quite a good rule. But anyway, yeah. yeah. But if
0: you're particularly yeah. looking at a painting, you've got someone standing in front of it, so you can't see it. That mm. is the <laughs> counterproductive at <laughs> the very least. Yes. And so I think what we wanted to do was try and make the paintings speak for themselves. Let the camera explore the paintings because that's very, it's perfect. The camera can get right in there and see sometimes more than you actually ever see with the naked eye and certainly more than you can see in a, in a gallery because you're not allowed too close. So let the camera go in there. You don't want somebody talking about it, although there will be instances where I've, <laughs> I've betrayed that myself. But I tried to keep out of the way and let the paintings Uh, speak for themselves and the landscapes and the places.
1: And uh, as you explained, the the very strong French influence on these painters. And your next programme explored French art, but in a way not through the artists themselves, but this rather extraordinary pair of sisters, the Cone sisters, who came from Baltimore and the programme title was called The Ladies Who Love Matisse. And I was particularly interested in this program because my one of my brothers lives in Baltimore and I've been to see their collection. And it's amazing, isn't it? Yes,
0: yeah. yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean they were great, they were great shoppers. <laughs> um, they had a lot of money, because I think from Levi G or something like that. They were both yeah. unmarried and they always went to Europe every summer and bought tons of stuff. Yeah. But, um, unlike, you know, some of the others who, who, who uh, rich Americans who bought entire buildings and took them to California, they concentrated really on painting. And they knew a lot about painting. And they did assemble this wonderful collection of Matisse and uh, 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 Picasso's and... Uh,
1: At quite early stages in those artists' yes. careers, weren't they? So they And were they were
0: helping them. them, actually, in their in the early yeah. stage. Matisse wasn't selling a lot in the States and they, were, they, they, bought, they bought his work. Um, and and he grew rather fond of them, didn't he? He grew fond of me. He went had dinner with them in their. They had just had an apartment, which you must have seen pictures yes, of. Yes, they've but mocked all up the pictures on well, the it, wall. Yeah. none were in drawers or anything. Like They're all on the wall, absolutely jammed up. You know millions and millions of dollars' worth of of great work. And it's now in the Baltimore Art Gallery. And the Cone Collection is is terrific. And they've mocked
1: up the apartment, so you do get a sense of it all being crammed in. You think, think, oh my, Matisse, Matisse, Picasso, Picasso. It is quite good, yeah. But the, but, the, but the women, that, I mean, when you look at their photographs, and I suppose this belies what was really going on, which I suppose this tells its own story about women in a way, but they appeared to be rather straight-laced, but they, I think they were anything but. They were, were part of that bohemian scene in Paris, weren't they? Friends of Gertrude Stein. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly, which is, again, it, 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 it makes you double-take. You think, oh, well, these people must have been, what did they know about... Art and artists and all that yeah. bohemian world, that world yeah. of sort of uh, you know creative stuff and all that. And clearly, they did understand it. And they yeah. understood it very well, and they had very good they had very good taste.
1: And you seem to be more comfortable with telling their story, with that narrative, than doing a big inverted commas landmark program about Matisse himself.
0: Yes, yes, I prefer to come at it obliquely um, because I think the big landmark programs you know you have to spend time it's it's a big big work and also it's kind of the reputation sort of so dominates what you're doing it becomes something where you can't be you can't be sort of flexible, you can't be sort of improvisatory, you can't be spontaneous. Working with Eleanor and Murray, we always we, we, we travel together, you know, the, the producer would be with us, Eleanor would be with us, the script could be changed any time. Oh, suddenly there's something over there, let's do that, which is just great. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't be able to do that, I think, with the big, big epic work. And you'd, yeah. have, you'd have management on your back all the time, I think saying, this has got to be the <laughs> work. Be, yes, and avoid And other people that. do that anyway, much better than I can, yeah. but I just enjoy the minor characters who well they're not minor but going in from the from the side as it were.
1: Yes, and I like that idea that you talk about the idea, the notion of approaching things from a tangential way because in a sense this gives us a connection to the next artist that you decided to make a program about and it's a Danish artist and his very paintings are subtle aren't they and you know literally yes. leaving Mm-mm. doors open mysterious
0: yeah. yeah yeah i mean they're more than subtle <laughs> they're sort of super subtle yeah because nothing's happening in them at all but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a room with doors open but there is something extraordinarily appealing um, and we're talking is... about
1: philham hamisoy yeah right? sorry
0: this is and <laughs> Hammersoy. and this this is how we work really and i think we were doing the cone sisters um, we were in Uh, Paris filming and in um, one of the pavilions there we we found some uh, Eleanor and me separately found catalogues of the work of a man called Willem Hammersoy who had been in had an exhibition in Paris in 1998 neither of us knew anything about him and we looked and there was some quality that was absolutely compelling it was very quiet, it was very sort of muted, very few colours but there was something absolutely compulsively Watchable about his work, which, um, and we both said, Well, let's go and find out about him. <laughs> There's
1: such a mystery, isn't there, about those paintings and the figure mm. of his wife with her back to us. Yes. What, what explanation do you have for that?
0: Well, it, it's, it's quite like his, his wife didn't like going out, and she, I think she suffered some kind of depression, some depressive illness. Um, but, you know, he was very loyal and very fond of her and <laughs> wanted her in, in the paintings. I think partly just because that was the only other person who he spent his time with, but also I suppose to give the composition something, some human element. But even when you don't have the human element, I think it's just something in the sunbeams coming through, the various pieces of furniture that he, he paints lots of different times, apparently he just moved them around the room. And he was just someone, he didn't didn't want to go out. He didn't want to go to Paris. He didn't want to go to any exhibition or anything. He just, his life was at home. And I found that really intriguing, such reticence, and yet such beauty in the painting. And they had an exhibition, I think it was here actually at the Royal Academy, a few years ago. And you'd think with all those rooms, empty rooms together, it would just be too much. And it was quite the opposite. You were suddenly taken in. You felt, wow, something's really connecting here. Mm. with this quiet man just painting. And he painted beautifully.
1: Really beautiful. And the light is, is very, Yeah, really I mean, really that, that
0: was the thing. It was really, very, only about two or three tones he uses, but he uses them so beautifully. And one of the things that, that I'm very proud of I mean, about doing these programmes is that we always worked with very, very good um, cameramen. And the idea was to try, for them to try and get a sense of the way the artists worked. The palette, the, artists, the palette, the artist used, and all that, and try and sort of get a sense of it in the way the whole film was composed and shot. And this was uh, done by Neville Kidd um, who, you know, just just did a, a fantastic, fantastic job. And kind of for for a photographer to, to be given that uh, brief, you know, try and imbue the whole programme with the colours and the feeling of the artist we're absorbed with. I mean, you're, you're halfway through understanding, halfway to understanding the artist.
1: Absolutely. And, but that. also, I mean, huge challenge, even for a really good lighting cameraman, to be able, for the, for the director to be able to go from a shot of the painting itself yes. to the room and not yeah. feel it jar. Yes. And I think, you know, it's skillful yeah. directing and camera work yeah. as well. And uh, you, yeah. you, you say you've, you've worked with this, you like working with the same team,
0: if at all possible in all of this. Yeah, yeah, generally speaking, I do.
1: And do you think, I just wonder as well, with whether, I mean, artists go in and out of fashion, but also I suppose there's, we, we're, we have a more of a Nordic sensibility now, don't we, in terms of the mm. drama that we watch, the, the books yes, that we read. Yeah. I, I think our appreciation mm. of that landscape, of that kind of light, even of, of, of the style yeah. of decor has changed, hasn't it?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And in a very short time, there were a whole number of, of paperback covers about angst and sort of all that sort of stuff, Norwegian, I mean uh, Scandinavian angst, and they used a Hammersway painting. It became became the go-to artist for all that. And suddenly they became actually very, very popular, and Terry Jones always used to say, Michael arts programs. First of all, he goes and buys a painting by an unknown person. <laughs> then he makes a program about it and he flogs the painting afterwards, <laughs> which is a bit unfair, but I could see what he meant. And in this case, definitely, um, mm-hmm. I think we, were, we, were, we, were re- we really started a sort of Hammersoy vogue. Mm. And Even in, in Denmark, very few people knew about it. We, went to, we filmed in Denmark and in the gallery there, there's one or two paintings and we, talk to people and say, are you from, yes, yes. Do you know Hammersoy? who? Yeah, really, so, yeah, really? Yeah, oh, so he was well kept secret. You know, I, I can't afford them now. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: I think that kind of obsession, you talked about um, the way that he would paint, you know, the same thing 60 times. If it's also a point of connection with your next program, Wyeth's World, with, it, with, the, with mm. the painter um, Wyeth, who, Again, it was two different locations, but he painted them again and again in an incredibly immersive way, didn't mm. he? And was it his most famous picture, Christina's World? Well? Was that what, what drew you into his art? Do you think?
0: Uh, not particularly. It was just that I, I think I was sent a book of, of, of Wyeth's art, and, and for some reason I thought art, Wyeth was a bit of corny. You know, he's just American pastoral stuff, pretty pictures of things. And as soon as I looked at them, I realized no, there's so much more, and not only pr- beautiful precision sort of um, work and sort of depicting nature and all that, but there was a lot more, a lot more going on in the background. So um, uh, Christina's world, you know, I, I, had, I had thought, you know, it's the woman in the fields turning around to look at the house on the, on the, on the horizon. And I, to be honest, I thought it was a, it was a young, young woman, sort of not sure whether to go away from home or stay at home, whatever. In fact, it was a woman as a, a paraplegic. She was in her fifties, uh, Christina Olsen. And she could, the way she moved, she wouldn't have a wheelchair in that. She dragged herself through the field. So this is what she's painting there. So immediately, wow, you know, something that of well, well, more I've describes than a it, I think in your program picture. you say
1: it's like a like a crab scuttling yes. along
0: the shore yeah. is the way
1: that she moved it. Yeah.
0: So I mean that was that's the classic painting, but then we found a lot more um, in the two the two places where he painted.
1: But the, the the first one the the Olsen farm and he became very interested mm. in the landscape, which of course we see in Christina's world, but the, but also the life of the family itself.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, he, he, he. I mean, he was from a kind of West Coast family, well educated, but he liked the farming world of, of Pennsylvania. Um, and this farm that he he just knew the people who worked on the farm, and almost every day he would go to the farm and do some painting of some kind um, for a period of twenty years or so. And the people he knew the people in the farm, while well, the Kerner family and all and of course there are other things that happened
1: yes which well, i
0: can tell you about
1: yes absolutely all, well, we'll let's, let's tell you let's, all about <laughs> that's that's, that's a good this. bit um, but we're going to play a clip for and this is a bit from um the other place where he, he was painting, uh, based and a lot of his paintings were based as well and that's chad's ford in pennsylvania Yes, it must have been fascinating to get inside that family yes. and the father's face and the
0: understanding yeah. of the war. But you can see in there a little bit like the Hammersoy. I hadn't really thought there was quite such a connection. It is a world that he painted constantly. Actually, every window you look through, there's the same view, the same chairs. Yeah. He just moves them around in different ways, um, on different days. And there are a lot of sort of suppressed stories there. I mean, his father, N.C. Wyeth, was a great. Um, children's book illustrator, one of the great, and he he died when he was hit by a train in Chad's Ford with his nephew on board, and the two of them died. And, um, you know, so there was all that going, and this is, this is part of, of Wyeth, the way Wyeth sees the world. And also the, the thing which is very, rather extraordinary is that this farm, there was a lady called Helga.
1: Oh, yes. <coughs> and um,
0: anyway, it, uh, it turned out that, <clears throat> Wyeth had been painting Helga quite regularly when, when he went to the farm. It wasn't just agricultural <laughs> machinery he was interested in. <laughs> and he painted her naked uh, a lot of times. And they're very beautiful paintings. They are marvellous sort of um, portraits of sort of women sleeping or, or going through the fields or whatever, but they were exquisitely painted. And he never let on that this was going on. And he would go back to his wife at six o'clock in the evening, back to their house, and she'd probably say, oh, did you get on today? And he'd say, oh, fine, yeah, 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 just a lot of corn stalks, all that sort of stuff, yes. And it was only um, after he died that these paintings revealed that there was this enormous number of the Helga paintings and they became very valuable because they're beautiful paintings. And she hadn't talked
1: about it, had she, until she had your nev- program? She had
0: never talked about it. It was one of the great successes of Eleanor and Mary's persuasive powers that they got her to talk to us. And it was, it was very difficult. She was kind of, she was a difficult woman, you know. She wanted to talk, but she didn't want to talk. I don't want to tell, I don't want to tell this story. I don't want people just interested in this story. I'm not going to tell this story. Where's the microphone? Um, yeah. New
1: England Stoicism in there somewhere as well. Well, yes, I
0: think it was Scandinavian probably some way back. And she wouldn't have the microphone if it was touching her flesh. She wouldn't do it in the main drawing room because of something. So we ended up in the kitchen, cramped in with me by the fridge doing this interview. (laughs) And it turned out that rather than give a couple of minutes of, you know, um, regular stuff, she talked for about an hour all Mm. about it and about Wyeth and how there was nothing sexual about it at all. And, you know, she wanted him to tell the world that there was She was very happy these paintings should be out, but he couldn't do it because of his wife. And there's a lot of politics in the Wyeth family now. Yeah. And they really, they didn't like Helga at all. They basically wanted her to shut up, I think. I so I there's don't... quite a bit of drama in that, that particular interview but she was obviously rather pleased that we'd uh, talk, <laughs> talk to her. He's, he's
1: described often as, as a realist painter, but is it, is it right that he in a sense saw himself as, as more of an abstract artist or at least having that element in his work?
0: Yeah, I think there was something, it was heightened realism or whatever. There was a sort of mm. twist to it all. Mm. Um, you know, his composition in the moment, the look of the faces and all that sort of thing. There's always something a little more than just, you know, a picture of a plant or a person or, or whatever. There's, there's, there's something else which he's added which just makes you look at it for that much longer than you would normally look at the painting of just an ordinary or realist painting.
1: Now, all the artists that we've discussed so far are pretty much in the modern era. But your most recent uh, film, which was called In Search of Artemisia, from um, 2016, was from a, a painter from the 17th century. and was quite a departure for you. Why, why did you get drawn to that?
0: Um, I, I think, again, I can't remember the exact course of the discussion, but I felt we should do, <laughs> we should do female painters from the you know, past. Because you know, they're, they're, they're so overlooked. And the story of art is generally of men, um, lusty men painting, you know, naked women or whatever. But I mean, it's, I wanted to find out where the good female artists were at that time, whether any of them were able to paint, whether they had the time to paint, whatever. And we discovered Artemisia Gentileschi, who was a great Extraordinary strong woman, um, born I think in fifteen ninety or something like that. So around about the time of the Baroque period and Caravaggio and all that. She lived in Rome and she lived in Naples, and she was a tough lady and also a, a, a masterly, so mistressly painter, very, 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 very skillful painter. Um, and her life had that added element that we we're always looking for, um, in that she was one of the very earliest people I think. The first ever rape trial was brought by Artemisia against uh, one of her father's friends, or Agostino Tassi.
1: Well, I'm going to talk a little bit more, get you to talk a little bit more about yeah. that in a moment, but let's um, hear you describing one of her most famous paintings. We get a sense of the skills there. And she was from an artistic family, wasn't she? Her father was yes. an artist. Yes, yeah.
0: Father Orazio who I think has, I think there's a couple of paintings of his in the National Gallery. Mm.
1: And but her mother died when she was quite young, which was a great tragedy mm. of her early years, wasn't it? Yes, yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. Um, and she, she really was brought up amongst her father's friends in Rome most of the time, and in doing our research, we realized how close everybody lived together, you know, in these sort of places. And so she was used as a model and painted as a child and all that sort of thing. And was surrounded by, by her father's friends and other artists and all that. But it was a very productive period because it was the counter-Reformation where the, the rock was being used to, to dazzle people with, with sort of either punishment or blood or gorgeous flesh or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Anything that was more interesting than Protestantism not <laughs> that difficult, really.
1: And the, and the local church, uh, was a famous church in the centre of Rome, is um, Caravaggio's, where she'd yes. have gone to worship, wouldn't yes. she? Do and and you see him as a big influence on her work?
0: Yeah. I think Caravaggio must have been an, a, a big influence. Uh, but she, you know, she had the skill and the ability to make very dramatic paintings. A lot of these you saw there are Bible stories. Uh, Susanna and the Elders, you know, where was... was uh, the dirty old man looking over at this naked lady and all that sort of famous famous biblical story and she brings it she gives it such life and such vigour and she makes the women like herself you know un- you know unapologetically sort of sexy and beautiful but in control which I think is is just as adds that little extra touch. And, and but also and her
1: version of Suzanne the Elders which you go into in some detail in the programme is compares the woman's perspective on what was going on with... Um, I mean, the, when it was with the male artists, it was... Uh, Susanna was sort of, you know, come hither, yes, come exactly. hither, yeah. and her version isn't like that as no, well. He's a much no. stronger
0: woman, isn't he? Yes, a yeah. stronger woman. It makes the men look far more sort of creepy. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, and, well, in a way, that's probably not so surprising, isn't it, given them I mean, you, you talked about um, the rape trial, and it's it's a horrific... Experience for for her, um, not just the, the rape itself, but what happened subsequently. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Well, she, she, it's it's quite complex because she lived with this man. She knew this man, Tassie. In fact, she was going to marry him. Um, he was the one who, who who raped her. He was he was but an
1: artist and a friend he was of her an father's. Artist, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. But he had it was something to do with the you know the dishonor of the house that this should have happened you know it shouldn't have happened in the house and all that and she was brave enough to say look I think this is worth um uh, dragging him to court and making him admit to it whereas others were just saying well just forget it you know you know each other anyway and all that so it was rather it was rather complex but she did actually win she won the case but um you know without any sort of acknowledgement of, of her innocence, It was still considered that she was um, you know, the Scarlet Woman by a lot of the men in Rome at that time. And she had to leave Rome and, and went to Naples and eventually actually ended up in, in London because her, her father Orazio became Charles II's court painter. And he was getting a bit old and, and she came and helped him paint the Queen's House at Greenwich.
1: And her, but she was, I mean, her reputation was neglected for centuries, really, wasn't yes. it? And was that partly because people were attributing some of her work to her father?
0: Yes, yes, absolutely that. It was sort of a misattribution. Um, and I mean, that's exactly what happened, not just to her father, but to other male artists at the time. Because a lot of people just couldn't accept that she had this skill and strength in painting that she could depict sort of glorious fleshy ladies so brilliantly you know it's so got to be a bloke you know it's <laughs> <kind> of, <laughs> uh, that, I think that was the, that was the thinking yeah. and so it was very frustrating for people who liked her work really to sort of um, uh, you know make a case for for what she'd done and her achievement and her ability. Now, again, a bit like Hammersaw has discovered, there is a, the, there's much more attention. In fact, the National Gallery have got one of um, Artemisia's paintings, which they're making a big thing of, and next year they're gonna have a big exhibition around it. It's going around, it's going around the country at the moment. And I think people are just astonished that this is a painting by a woman.
1: Well, I can remember seeing, I mean, we saw um, the sort of Holofernes at the beginning there, one version yeah. of it, but it's a theme I think she returned to more than once, and I can remember being in a gallery, and I, thi- I think it was in Budapest, and in a big room, and I saw this painting, and I was like, oh my God, that's incredible, and then going up to it, mm. and then seeing the power and the violence, mm. it's just so brilliantly, strongly painted, and then looking, and said, like, oh, by woman, you know, Artemisia yeah. Gentileschi, who I hadn't come across a few years ago, so it's wonderful to see her there's a lot into of her... sort of
0: talk about that painting being revenge for what happened to her. Yeah. But I think that's a theory which seems almost too obvious. She just took, she painted Bible stories because that's how she made a living. And she was a very good businesswoman. And even mm. though she had to leave Rome, she was still got commissions from people. She ended up working for the Medici family so she could uh, she could take whatever they wanted. You want a story of uh, men leering over the walls, Susanna and the elders, I'll do it for you, better than anybody else. Yeah. Uh, Judith and Holofernes, I'll do that better than anybody else. And <laughs> certainly it was more bloodthirsty than yeah. any of the others.
1: Well, it's interesting, but I mean, you wonder why why are people commissioning that particular painting again and again, you know, it's, is there something? Well,
0: it's partly because there was kind of an educated elite in, in these cities like Rome and they, they wanted slightly sort of exciting paintings of sort of, you know, passion. In, in a biblical context, it was all right, but it was, <laughs> it was a passion. It was men, women struggling, you know, yeah. with, with lust and passion and anger and all that. It was part of the counter-reformation stuff, really yeah. kind of highly... Um, uh, aroused emotions really and all that people quite right. like that sort of thing I think and still
1: do frankly don't they Michael oh yeah yeah
0: no I I suppose yeah get it any way you want I suppose now but then <laughs> yes. it was just deemed respectful because you could see it in church yes yeah you could see Susanna and the elders would have been seen in the church somewhere
1: yeah yes it's be- a
0: biblical story and it was trying something or other.
1: Yes, and for most people, that would be their only exposure to visual arts, actually, well, yes. because the big collectors were private palaces and stuff. So and on.
0: That's, that's what I felt when we were doing, looking around the churches um, in the um, Artemisia uh, program, was just how, how amazing these great paintings must have been in the churches then. You know, there was, you know, the light went at six o'clock or something like that, so there'd be candles and all that flickering so that's why there was so much flesh because flesh showed up in the, in the dark evenings yeah. you see these amazing things yeah. and that's why they exaggerated the, 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 the passion, the, the brutality sometimes, the violence because people were just wow you know this is yeah. the only place they'd see it, <laughs> it was in church, church absolute... rather than on uh, you know TV.
1: Right, well, it's I'm going to open it up to questions in, in just a moment, so have a think about what you might like to, to ask Michael. But I just wanted to get you to reflect more generally about what art programmes you think... You know, which are the ones that you think are successful and what is it that they can contribute to our understanding of paintings that going to an exhibition or reading books about um, doesn't quite do?
0: Well, I mean, it's hard because I don't watch all the arts (coughs) programs that are around. Um, But I think there there probably should be more of them. And perhaps slightly less formulaic. I'm not saying this is the way to do it always, but concentrate on the fine detail of painting or a life or something like that. Rather than saying this is the school of so-and-so or the ism or this that and the other sort of school of this, that and the other. Just look at paintings and, and acknowledge that any painting, any painting anywhere can you know, affect one particular person in a, in a way that's quite different from everybody else. It's very, very subjective. And just be a little more sort of uh, informal, I think about, about art mm. and also make art what it is really, which is something that is full of life. You know, you look at a good painting and it, sort of, it, it, it transforms the way you think about that particular thing at that particular time. Bad painting just looks like something you could have you could see anywhere else. But there's so much art, there's so much painting, you look at it and you think, wow, I've never seen that that before. That's really changed the way I look at things.
1: And I suppose in a way actually, but the way you describe it just struck me is that we're taking a lesson from the artists themselves like Hammersoy or like which is looking into a smaller world. So picking one painting, going into that microcosm and then you learn so much more So sort of digging deeper rather than yeah. doing <clears> the, the, the grand overview. I think
0: mm-hmm. so. I, I, you know, my personal view, there's a lot too much ha- hagiography about art, you know. There are the great painters, and then there are all the others. Well, give me all the others any time, you know. Of course there are great painters who are brilliant and and marvellous, but for me, the excitement is finding out other painters who are perhaps less well-known but have something very, very powerful uh, to say. And, And that, I think, is like, it's a bit like travel, it's exploration, really. Um, not just accepting a reputation, but exploring the substance of it. How do they paint? What paints do they use? Why do they paint them the way they do? What were they like? Had they, you know, their, their, their lives? And just generally getting into, into it, as you say, more detail and more depth.
1: Lovely. Okay, well, let's, I'm sure there's plenty of questions. Oh, that's what i like to see. Hands up at the back immediately. Fantastic. Well, that's lovely. Well, I think we're going to draw this uh, session to a close. I wanted to say thank you so much for describing these really interesting programmes told with your characteristic restraint and insight, <laughs> um, but also for the insights and, in fact, revelations that we've had today, both about the Monty Python foot and the fact that you are a founder <laughs> member of the TV Aerial School of Art. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Palin, many thanks indeed for talking uh, to thank us. You. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, <laughs> Thank
0: you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, have a look at what else is coming up in our brand new lecture theatre at roy.ac forward slash what's on.